back in and take your seat. Come on in. You can talk after church. That would be good while you're helping Sister Ashley set up. It was July 2nd, 1987. Daniel Lyman's brother called the police because he just felt inside there was something wrong with his brother. When the police arrived that day at Daniel's house, he shouted out the window for them to stay away because he didn't want to hurt anybody. So the police were in a bit of a standoff, and about five minutes later, they heard a loud bang in the house. They stormed the house only to find that Daniel had taken his own life. When they began to search the house, they found Daniel's wife, along with his two-year-old daughter and five-week-old son, all dead from gunshot wounds. As they continued to investigate throughout the day, they went to Daniel's parents' house where they found Daniel's parents sitting on a couch with the TV still going, each with bullet holes in the back of their head. When they went to Daniel's in-law's house, they found a similar scene. In all, eight people dead. Was it just another isolated incident of violence? Is this the only time we've heard of this in our lives? The University of Texas at Austin, 1966. They call it, for those of you that were around back in those days, they call it the Tower Shooting. Fourteen dead. Thirty-one wounded. Paducah, Kentucky, 1997. Three dead. Five wounded. Jonesboro, Arkansas. 1998, five dead, nine wounded. Columbine High School, 1999, 15 dead, 24 wounded. An Amish school in Lancaster, PA, 2006, six dead. Virginia Tech in 2007, 33 dead, 25 wounded. An Orlando nightclub in 2016, 49 dead and 50 wounded. And perhaps the most recent, a Las Vegas concert venue in 2017, 58 dead and 500 wounded. Now I just read through those all very quickly and easily, but we're talking about 200 people dead. Not just dying because they were old or dying because of disease, but because of violence, and most frequently gun violence. I did a Google search, and there have been over 40. Listen to this. This is just unbelievable. There have been over 40 of what have been termed massacres in just the last 40 years. So that's a massacre per year. That's only measuring it in Local USA schools, 40 massacres in 40 years. 
The question that James raises for us this morning is really the same question that most of us have asked. What's with all the anger? What's with all the violence? How did we end up with words like road rage? Or parents. I mean, you have a YouTube channel just for parents getting in fistfights at their children's t-ball games. Have you ever been to a t-ball game? Is there anything less competitive? But parents, a whole page just given over to parents getting in fistfights at t-ball games. We've even coined a phrase for a specific kind of anger. It's called going postal because of people shooting up post office. In fact, I thought it was just unbelievable. Most recently that I could find a handicapped person who went to park in a handicapped space but somebody who was not handicapped had parked there just moments before them and he saw them get out of their vehicle and go into the store. He found a parking space, got out in his wheelchair, went into the store and shot the person dead for taking his parking space. In fact, this has become so common that we now have a psychological name for it. It's called explosive disorder. The question James asks is, What's with all this anger and violence? Now, you might well say that the reason why we're more aware of it is because of real-time media saturation, and you might be right. You might even say that the examples that I've given are extreme, and they don't represent you or your life. And I hope that that's true. But can you be honest for just a moment? Just inside your own soul. Don't nod. Don't raise your hand. Don't do anything. Just, just be honest. Don't you sometimes deal with anger? Don't you sometimes feel like lashing out in frustration? Oh, we, we, we wallpaper our stuff and we make it prettier. We don't say we have an anger problem. We say, well, I just got frustrated. My wife used to tell me all the time, you know, it looks like you just seem like you're angry. I said, I'm not angry, I'm upset. So we put on fancier words. We say, we're annoyed. But what James wants to tell us this morning, and I want you to get this, if you get nothing else, get this. The source of it all is the same source. Whether it's shooting from a tower in Texas or getting in a fight with your spouse, the source of the anger is the same. And James takes most of a chapter just to talk about it. it. It shouldn't surprise you then that the Bible is full. It's a history of anger and violence. In fact, can you guys remember what the first example of, of conflict in the Bible is? I'm sorry, what? Oh, no, 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 no. Go before that. How about when Lucifer and God got in a fight in heaven? And then the next time the scene is when there's conflict between Lucifer and mankind. And then, oh yes, you have Adam and Eve playing the blame game. And then you end up with Cain and Abel, angry, fighting, 
competitive and ending with murder. I mean, just, just in the first chapters of the Bible, you have spiritual warfare. You have marital conflict. And you have sibling rivalry. I suggest to you that the Bible has something to say to us about anger and violence. Would you open up to James chapter 4? James 4. And beginning in verse 1. James 4 verse 1. It's up on the screen for you if that helps you. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Again, go back to the first chapter. Who was James writing? Believers. Christians. In church. Church Christians. You know, those, those important spiritual people? That's who he's writing to. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Oh, there, there it goes again. Pleasure, verse 1. Pleasure, verse 3. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or being an enemy of God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, interestingly, some of the commentators, some of the scholars that I read, suggest that James is actually writing to a real-life situation where somebody in the church has actually killed somebody else. Maybe even in the church. I don't know if that's true. But James is talking about an anger that explodes into violence. He says in verse 1, Where do fights and wars come from among you? Don't they come from your desire for pleasure? In verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And by the way, when he's talking about friendship with the world, he isn't saying you shouldn't be kind to the people around you who are, quote, in the world. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about being unfriendly to your neighbors. When he uses that word world, it's the Greek word cosmos, which speaks about the world's value system. He says if you become friends, if you adopt the world's value system, you are automatically an enemy of God where you buy into the world's system of doing things. And James tells us two causes for conflicts, just in those two verses. The first is our basic desires, and the second is worldly motivation. When you take basic desires and you blend them together in a pot with worldly desires, you are setting yourself up for an explosion. Um, back uh, years and years ago when we lived in Watertown, I was asked to teach a science course at a local Christian school. I have to tell you the honest to God truth. Science was probably my work, worst 
um, course ever. I didn't even like science, but they asked me to do it, so I did it. Well, no one told me that you should try experiments ahead of time. So I'm doing what the book says. I thought I'm putting all this stuff together, and all of a sudden it's exploding all over the place with this colored purple junk. I think it was purple. Maybe it was orange. But whatever it was, it was explosive. James is saying that's the same kind of thing. When you mix together basic desires with worldly motivations, you're going to get a mess. It's going to explode all over you. If you think about it, conflict kind of starts early in life, doesn't it? You've got little Susie, sweet little Susie, playing with her bitty baby at bedtime. And mommy says, Okay, Susie, you need to put your dial down. It's time to go to bed. And suddenly, sweet little Susie becomes this ogre refusing to obey, obey mean mommy when she wants to play with bitty baby. Or you've got little Johnny who is consumed watching Paw Patrol. And daddy comes along and says, Time for you to take the garbage out. Pretty soon, it's World War III in your household, all because of a desire mixed with worldly motivations. And those littles grow up and become teenagers and then young adults, and pretty soon they get sick of mom and dad, mean old mom and dad's rules. And they decide, I'm going to head out of home on my own, and I'm going to get married where I'm going to have Love and peace and rainbows and heart emojis. I'm going to have it all. And then they wake up the next morning after their wedding while still on their honeymoon and realize like Jacob did years before that he had married somebody different than he thought he had. It's said that marriage goes through three stages. The honeymoon stage, the party's over stage, and the let's make a deal stage. For all of us, that's kind of the way it is. In this life and into every relationship, there comes opportunity for conflict, for anger, even sometimes for violence. And James talks to us this morning about the source and progression of conflict. And I want to look at that with you today, the source and progression of conflict. The first one, if you're taking notes, is I want. Conflict always begins with some kind of desire. Your desire in conflict with somebody else's desire or their unwillingness to meet your desire. We all know that some desires are inherently wrong, right? When you get mad at somebody, it's inherently wrong to want to punch them in the face. It's just wrong. Uh, I was doing therapy on my shoulder. And the very first therapy session, this guy's he's yanking on it after surgery, and it hurts so bad. I mean, I don't think I'm a baby. Maybe I am, but I don't think so. At least in my own mind, I'm not. But he's yanking on my shoulder and saying, okay, just a little bit farther, a little bit further. The next therapy session I had, and again, I'm fighting, by the way. This first one, I'm fighting, not crying. It hurt. It hurt. The next session, the one who's in charge of the therapy place, comes and says, so you've had one therapy, how was it? And I said, this was a lady, I said, tell you the truth, ma'am, I wanted to punch this guy in the face. 
it hurts so bad. I mean, here I am. I'm, I've been a believer for a long time. I got saved back in 1976, so however long that is. I've been a Christian a long time, and I wanted to punch that guy in the face. He was hurting me so bad. His desires were in conflict with my desires. My desire was for my shoulder to be all better without any pain. His desire was to hurt me. And he was winning. We know that lashing out and hurting someone isn't right, but there are some desires that aren't wrong. Wanting peace in your home isn't wrong, is it? Wanting a little bit of joy in life, that's not wrong, is it? Or is it wrong for mom to want a clean home once in a while and the kids to actually pick up their messes? I don't think so. It's not wrong. Or how about a husband and wife to have an intimate, loving relationship? Is that wrong? No, I don't. Or how about parents having respectful children? Is that wrong? I noticed the kids stopped answering. Up until then, they were doing good. It's not wrong to want fair pay for fair work. It's not wrong to want good health. How many of you have ever said anything like this? I'll finally be able to relax and be happy when? And then you fill in the blank. When I finally get a good high-paying job. When I'm finally out of debt. When I'm finally married. Um, I can remember, this is confessing, you guys plug your ears. I can remember when I was a teenager praying this prayer again and again and again. I prayed that Jesus would not return before I could get married because I just knew that marriage would finally make me happy. And it would be the answer to all my problems. Any of you guys ever had those kind of thoughts? I'm it. All right. No, Nick did. All right. Thank you, Nick. And once you get married, did you find that it answered all of your happiness questions? What happens if your good and even legitimate desires aren't being met? Like your desire for intimacy with your spouse. On the one hand, you can ask God to help you to actually meet with you and to become your place of intimacy, even if you never get it over there. Or you can become angry and bitter and disappointed and lash out in various ways. Our inability to have our desires met can lead to frustration and anger and sometimes even violence. Those unrealized expectations. James even tells us, first of all, the, the first category is I want, but then James tells us what are the things that we want that often cause us problems. And he just names three of them real quick. The first is, this is I, I want to have. It's the desire to have. We want stuff. We watch commercials and we're sure that that thing is going to make me happy finally. Or when you have a fight with your spouse and you know that the only thing that's going to make you feel better is to go buy a new outfit. Go buy something new. That always makes you feel good. This desire to have. James puts it in verse 2. 
You want what you don't have. Or he later on says, you covet what others have. The Bible tells us we're to love people and we're to use stuff. The problem is, is when you reverse that formula and you use people to get what you love. That's where we get in trouble. It's easy to buy into the idea that stuff will make you happy. Do you know what psychologists say is the number one cause of divorce in America? Do you know what it is? It's fighting over money. Financial pressures. Struggling in your budget or your lack thereof. Things and the desire for things become a battleground. We Americans think that the Constitution says that we are ordained. We have a right to life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. Most of you know that a couple of weeks ago, my car engine blew up. You guys all knew that, right? Yeah, my car, which was a nice car. It was older, but it was a nice car. It blew up. So we had to go car shopping, and we bought a new car. Well, it's a newer car for us. It's not new. We bought this new car. It's a different color. It's black, but it's still a Chevy Equinox. It's actually a couple of models down from what we had had. But it's a new car. And when you get a new car, it's shiny. They've cleaned it. They've waxed it. They've vacuumed the inside. They even put in these little um, like air fresheners in the vents. Have you ever seen those? Like those are like They're pink colored and they smell like flowers and stuff like that or fruit or something. I don't know. So the thing looks good, it smells good, but it doesn't take very long for you to realize that in the end, it's just some plastic and metal riding on four pieces of rubber. That's all it is. It's a car. I don't care how new it is. It's still just a car. Stuff isn't going to make us happy. 1 John chapter 2, John calls this desire the lust of the eyes. You say, yeah, but Pastor, you don't understand. It was on sale. I had to buy it. Or I love what stores do now. Have you noticed that the receipts that they give you now tell you how much you saved? So you come home and you say, honey, I saved us $200. Forget how much I spent on stuff that I don't even know where I'm going to put it because I'm already piling my clothes on the floor. I have no more closet space but I just have to have it because it's a great deal. The desire to have, number one. Number two, the desire to feel. I want to feel good. James puts it this way. You want to spend on your pleasure. Now I confess, at this stage of life, I'm getting a little bit older, I like my comfort. We went on vacation and we stayed in a barn. I have to tell you, I don't care how repurposed you think that was. It wasn't Chip and Joanna Gaines at all. It was a barn. And it got a failing grade by me for comfort. I want my comfort. I want things to be easy at this stage of life. I've worked hard all my life. Shouldn't I be able to have it easier? That's kind of what James is talking about here. It's not that God is opposed to us enjoying good things and being comfortable. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.17, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But when our desire for pleasure, our desire for comfort, even our desire for happiness, trumps doing what is right, even if that is harder, what is best, 
There's something wrong. Do you know that the second thing that causes divorce, first was financial pressure. The second one is, what do you think? Sex. They fight over sex. The desire to feel. It's not what I thought it would be like. This desire to have, the desire to feel, the desire to be. John calls this the pride of life. This is all about power, prominence, popularity. It's how I want people to see me. And you're willing to do whatever it takes. At a very young age, my father taught me the face. Do you know what I mean by the face? This is when somebody does something you don't like or they get in your way. You give them the face. And they learn pretty quickly, you better move. Because it's about me. I want you to know I'm somebody to be reckoned with. I'm intimidating in my own right. Except for my grandkids don't buy into that. They should be on that. Proverbs 13.10 says, Pride leads to arguments. Pepsi called us the me generation. Frank Sinatra epitomized this in the song, I did it my way. It's all about me. And pride takes us into another whole arena that James addresses. It's pride that keeps me from admitting my need. It keeps me from admitting I need help. Pride keeps me independent, not asking. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. Why does someone not ask? Why does someone not pray? Because they feel like, I can handle this myself. I don't need anybody. I don't even need God. Um, this, all, this all has to do with looking out for what I want. Uh, in our first church, Karen and I were pastoring a small church, or one of our first churches. I think it was actually our second church. And uh, we were pastoring and we were having a Bible study. And at the end of the Bible study, we had a time of prayer. And a young couple in the church said, Pastor, would you pray that God would give us this house? We want this house. We feel like it's right. So would you pray that God would give us this house? When I prayed, I prayed something like, God, I pray that if this is in fact your will for this couple to have this house, you will cause heaven and earth to move until they actually possess it. But, if this is not your will, God, I pray you will close every single door and they won't be able to kick one of them open. When I got done praying, they said, why did you pray that? We already told you we want the house. They were so angry about it. This is no, ex no exaggeration. They were so angry about it, they left the church that night and never came back. Because I had the audacity to believe that God might have a higher reasoning than theirs. That God might actually say no to your want. That He might have a better plan. We forget that the old song says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What James is talking about is you don't ask because you think you can run your own life. You go through whole days without even thinking about God. You come to church on Sunday, you lift your hands and worship, but then you spend the rest of the week just living for yourself. That's what James is talking about. 
is it any wonder then you get frustrated? Because it's no longer about what God might want, it's what you want and what makes you feel good. Pride keeps us from living in community with God and with others. So the first step of anger and violence, of conflict, is I want. The second step is I require. This is where we move from I want to I have to have this. I need this. Even to I deserve this. This is where we say things like, I work hard all week. Don't I deserve a little peace and quiet when I get home? This is where we say things like, I worked two jobs to put you through college. I deserve your respect. This is where we say, you're my wife and the Bible says I have a right to expect intimacy from you whenever I want. This, is, this one is all about a sense of entitlement. We quickly move from, I'd like this, to, I can't live without this. This trumps it all. I don't care if the Bible says it's wrong. I don't care if other people say it's wrong. I don't care. It's what's going to make me happy. I'm going to do this. Even if the initial desire is not inherently wrong, what becomes wrong is when we want it too much, even if God doesn't want us to have it. We don't care what God wants. We want what we want. James says, we ask amiss. Instead of a prayer that yields to God's plan and purpose, we basically are asking for God's rubber stamp of approval on what I want. I have to have this. Take a moment and think about it. Uh, just, just in your own heart and mind. What would it take to make you happy right now? Just think about it. What would it take to make you happy? And I want to suggest to you that anything that pops into your mind other than God in the sincerity and authenticity of your own heart, that thing is what the Bible calls an idol. Oh, when we think of idols, we think of statues made of wood or stone or metal that pagans bow down and worship. But that's not how the Bible describes idols. The Bible says anything that you're looking to for your source of joy and happiness outside of God, anything like that is an idol. It's not that we want that's a problem, it's that we demand it. It's not unreasonable to want a passionate relationship with your spouse. It's not unreasonable to want open communication with your spouse. It's not unreasonable to want enough money to be able to pay your bills and maybe even have a little bit more that you can be given. Those aren't unreasonable. But when you have to have those to be happy, you've just made an idol of those things. All through the Bible, God uses two words to describe idolatry in this way. He calls it idolatry, but then he also calls it adultery. And that's what he says in verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Why would he say that? Look at verse 5. The spirit in you yearns jealousy. Why would he use that term, adulterer? James is telling us that when you draw satisfaction of life, primarily from anything or anyone other than God Himself, you're cheating on God. 
He's a jealous lover. He's not going to play second fiddle to anyone. He's an all or nothing God. The Scripture says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. God will not play second place to anything or anyone. No matter how good it might seem. He might even want you to have it for your pleasure. But if that thing becomes a requirement, there's a problem. Thirdly, you move from, I want, to I require, to I judge. This is where you actually take it one step further. You begin to play God over people's lives. Now, how many of you have ever done this? How many of you have ever been in a, a disagreement, a fight, an argument with your spouse? And in that time, you're having a mental conversation about why your spouse is all wrong and you're all right. You've marshaled all of your facts. You've got them in order. You've got your ducks in a row. And you know you're right and they're wrong. And you have every right to be angry at them because God hates what they're thinking. You judge. You, you, you come along the thing. And it's like you play this broken record where you can stand in judgment of other people. Which leads us to our fourth and final progression of conflict, which is I penalize. Idols always want sacrifices. When others fail to satisfy our rightful expectations, we're going to make them pay in some way. It can be overt or it can be covert. It can be aggressive or it can be passive or it can be a combination. Passive-aggressive. We're going to make them pay. Some people use their words to punish. They say hateful, attacking things with their words. They swear in order to power up over people. Some people use force. Get in somebody's face. Get too close to them. Let them know you're not going to have your way. My way is all that matters. We use our presence as a tool. We intimidate. We want to make sure they know you better back down and let me have my way or else. Others convey conflict resolution by giving disapproving looks, by pulling back, giving them what I call the silent treatment. In my family growing up, uh, when you had conflict, you never, I don't remember one time, not once, talking through anything. I don't remember ever a fight in our family where when you got all done, you had talked through it. I don't remember ever going back to it and talking through it. The way it worked in our family is when you got in a fight, you just stopped talking to them for a long time. And then when you decided enough time had gone by, perhaps they'd paid enough by suffering through your silence, then you would just come back and act like everything was normal. Never talk about it. Just start talking. And if by chance you would come to some resolve that maybe you were a little bit wrong, you would show your penance in some way, by like maybe buying them something. I can remember my father and my sister getting in a fight one time. She was married by that time, had a child, and my father had the audacity in his house to correct her child. She got mad. She picked up her child, picked up all their stuff. They left. They lived about two miles down the road. Months went by. 
Nothing. Next thing that happens is this is wintertime. My dad shows up driving down our little Ford Ferguson. We're talking about a little Ford Ferguson tractor with this homemade plow on the front, driving two miles down the road in the bitter cold to plow out her driveway. That was just the first step, though. The second step was after he got her driveway all cleared and a place for them to park the cars and turn around, he drove the tractor back home, got in his car, drove down to the store, PNC at the time, went down to PNC and bought a bunch of groceries brought it back, walked into their house and put it on the counter and sat down. Everything's all good now, right? You okay? All right, good. Let's just pretend everything's normal. Never talk about anything. Just give them the silent treatment until they've paid enough or until you've paid enough, as the case might be. That distance or absence can include just a subtle coolness. It can include things like withholding affection, being distant from people. Uh, it can be walking around sad and gloomy all the time, letting them know, you've done something that really bothers me, and I'm going to be unhappy until you fix it. We penalize people by our attitudes, by our looks, by our demeanor, and unfortunately, sometimes people even become violent. They become physical in it. We all know the saying, by the way, when mama ain't happy, mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. There is a Christianized version of it, by the way. It goes something like this. Happy wife? Hmm. Have you thought about those phrases? Mom, do you really want that? Do you want to be the one so in control of the household that if you're not happy, you're going to make the household hell for everybody else? Because that's what it's saying. It's saying mom's in charge, mom's attitude, mom's feelings trump everything. And by the way, I'm not saying mom against dad. The truth is, why would anybody say it? Is that really how you want to live your life? Controlling people with your attitude? What we're really saying is you either get in line and make me happy, or I'll make you suffer. That's what we're saying. This morning, We've looked at the cause. We're going to stop there because the second part is the cure. James gives us a cure. It's very simple. It'll be much shorter, but it's still going to take too long for me to get to today. So, this morning we've looked at the cause. The cause and progression of conflict. I want. I require. I sit in judgment of you for not giving it to me. And then I penalize. All starting with basic desires. Some might not even be wrong, but I want them more than anything else and I'm going to get them. And you're going to pay the price. It's your job to make me happy. If I'm not happy, it's your fault. That's what James is talking about. And out of that, very basic attitude springs anger and violence. Wars and quarrels among you. So I want to take just a moment, if you would just bow your head. just between you and the Lord right now your head bowed, eyes closed ask the Lord maybe even you already know this answer it's already inside your own mind and soul but are you 
an angry person? Do you find it easy to get upset about things? To become sharp? Rather than speaking quietly and humbly with love, you find it easier to snap? You want to make sure everybody knows that you're in charge, that you know the right way, and it better be done that way? Are you an angry person? It's your way, or they better hit the highway. Maybe you would say, that's not me, Pastor. I'm not angry. I would suggest two things to you. Number one, maybe ask some people around you that you can trust. Do they see you that way? And then number two, maybe you're not blowing up in anger all the time, but do you let your discontent with life, your desire for stuff that Someone, perhaps your spouse, is not fulfilling. Maybe your children. Maybe your parents. Do you let that affect your moods? Because that's also what James is talking about. The beginning road of it is moodiness. Roller coaster ride of emotion. Maybe something that I have said to you this morning clicked inside of you and you said, oh my word, that's me. I've got this thing in me. And I don't want it. I want to change. So even before you hear what James gives as the cure next week, you want to do some business with God. You want to say, man, I don't want it this way at all. I don't want to be an angry person. I don't want to be snapping at my spouse or at my kids or at my parents or at my friends or at my boss, my co-workers. I don't want to live that way. I want the Prince of Peace to rule in my heart. I want my identity to be so in Jesus that nothing else of this life is going to change that. If you realize this morning by something that I've said that it's touched something inside of your own heart and you know that you want that thing to change, I'm going to offer you just a couple of moments. You don't have to take long. But I'm going to offer you the opportunity to come to the front and kneel at the altar. And by kneeling, your posture is saying, God, I don't even know for sure how to do this yet, but I want this to change. I don't want to be a reactor waiting to explode. I want to respond with the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's what's inside of my heart. I'm not there yet. And God's not judging you because you're not there yet. He loved you when you were still His enemy. How much more now that you're His child? But that doesn't mean God won't give you grace to change. If that's in your heart, you realize you play those games with your family. And when you're unhappy, everybody knows, oh, you better walk in eggshells. Mom's unhappy. Dad's unhappy. It doesn't matter whether you did anything wrong. It's just that they don't like it and they're going to cost Hell to pay. And it is hell. Not God. It's not heaven. It's hell. If that's you, you're saying, I, I want that thing in me to change. The altar's open. If you can't kneel physically because of whatever's going on in your body, I understand. I encourage you still to come forward and sit in one of the chairs up front. And just by doing it, you're saying, God, this is what I want. I want to change. So the altar is open.